Greetings from the Crane, an Africa-China podcast. It's been a while since we had Amadeus with us. Amadeus, how are you doing? I know you've been busy for a while and I couldn't get you on, but glad to have you now. Thank you. It's good to be here with you today. Sadly, though, it will be our last chat, one-on-one at least, together, since Amadeus is going to be leaving us for hopefully greener pastures than than the, the, the crate has been able to provide. But uh, I'm sad to lose you, Amadeus. So am I, so am I. But, you know, um, life is like that. I, I don't know if it's greener grass on the other side. You know, um, they always say the grass is actually greener where you're at and is brown everywhere else. You just don't see it. <laughs> but of course, uh, who knows? I will probably be back. I can't just uh, leave the crane alone. We started this together, and uh, we've got an incredible, uh, engaged, uh, small little audience. Um, so let's see what happens in the future. All doors are open and no bridges are being burned. All doors are open. So speaking of bridges, that brings us to the topic of today. We want to talk about the Belt and Road Initiative. I feel like this is one of those big, uh, I don't know, elephants in the room, but an elephant that we don't necessarily understand and it gets mentioned a lot. So we wanted to discuss it a little bit, particularly because this year marks 10 years since the BRI was initiated. We want to talk about this because... I recently read, I don't know if you saw it, Amadeus, I saw this tweet by the heinous U.S. Senator Marco Rubio, who is obviously no friend of ours, nor holds any kind of political commonalities with with us, a conservative U.S. Senator, who, in response to Bolivia's recent agreement with a Russian state nuclear firm, uh, Rostom, as well as China's Citiquan Group, who are going to basically develop uh, largely untapped resources of lithium in Bolivia, which famously, every time I think of Bolivian lithium, I think of Elon Musk and how he said a a few years ago, just before the right-wing US-supported coup against Evo Morales and, you know, his progressive government, he said, you know, in response to wanting to get access to the lithium of Bolivia, which is one of the biggest known untapped reserves, he said, we will coup whoever we want. Which, wow. Uh, Mika, you're saying it wrong. You need to say it with a strong Afrikaans accent. Yeah? We will, I, mean, I don't, we are I don't know if he has that kind of accent, but wants. just the, 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 in, in your mind. But the, the, no, the straight up, just you know, in my mind. those who are the owning class are the ones who have a right to all humankind's resources for their personal profiteering and not for the benefit of humanity. But Jumping back to Marco Rubio, he basically, you know, uh, said that, I want to quote him, he tweeted, actually, whether it's through China's BRI, debt trap policy, or other false promises, nations in our region must remain vigilant of the threat of doing business with Beijing. So once again, you know, lumps up all these false narratives or misinformations about what exactly BRI is in China. And this is despite the fact that a range of policymakers and researchers have done a lot of debunking of, you know, the debt trap narrative. We've spoken about it before. I mean, even the World Bank, researchers have described, and there was a report a few years ago, maybe it was 2018, they described BRI as largely beneficial. Their words, largely beneficial. Of course, they can't say a success story because they have to keep the hold on how much we congratulate China or appreciate what has been done. And this is despite the fact that all these policymakers, many have debunked the debt trap narrative, 
debunked it in relation to the BRI. And they continue to, the likes of Marco Rubio, and this was just a few days ago, it was in July, they continue and different Western allied groups continue to kind of stoke fears and misunderstandings. And so today we want to think about and talk about the role of BRI, what is BRI, especially in relation to the concept and the, the, the reality of development and underdevelopment. So I wanted to start off with this clip that we, we heard the other day from a Polish ex-deputy prime minister, uh, I'll butcher his name, Grzegorz Kolodoko, Kolodoko uh, who shared some particular insights about what he thinks about BRI. Take a listen. China is uh, taking a look for what project some countries in South Asia or Eastern Europe or Africa are borrowing the money from Chinese financial system. So for myself, this talk about Belt and Road as a that trap is rather, say, ill-advised uh, Western American-led criticism without very much of uh, justification. But again, as an economist, I'm saying Belt and Road is not a charity. It's a political and business program. And that was an ex-Polish prime minister um, sharing his views and opinions on BRI. I will equally not try and say his name because I will butcher it. So what is BRI? The BRI, or the Belt and Road Initiative, is a vast infrastructure and economic development project first proposed by the Chinese government in 2013, that is by Chinese President Xi Jinping, and it aims to enhance the connectivity and promote economic cooperation between China and countries in Asia, Europe, Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean. That's pretty much most of the world. <laughs> so the initiative interestingly enough, was named uh, after the belt, which uh, refers to the uh, Silk Road Economic Belt, and the road, uh, which refers to the 21st century maritime Silk Road, right? So there's this nice little wordplay up going on here. The Silk Road was an ancient network of trade routes that connected China to various different regions of the world, mostly through Central Asia. And the uh, initiative has both land-based and maritime components. So the uh, Silk Road Economic Belt focuses on connecting China with Central Asia, Russia, uh, and Europe through a network of uh, different transportation systems and infrastructure. The 21st century maritime Silk Road, on the other hand, aims to uh, strengthen maritime trade links between China, Southeast Asia, the Indian Ocean, the Middle East, and of course, our very own Africa. Now, the Belt and Road Initiative seeks to revitalize and expand the concept of the Silk Road through the construction of physical infrastructure, such as roads, railways, ports, and energy pipelines, which uh, aim to overcome obstacles to the development and raising the productivity of societies in many regions of the world. Because as we know, Mika, one of the biggest challenge to economic development uh, in many, many parts of the world, but in Africa especially, are um, inter-regional links, you know, um, links between neighboring countries. You know, it's ridiculous. Um, if I want to fly to Wadadugo 
in Burkina Faso from Zambia, I would first have to fly to South Africa, from South Africa to Paris, France. So I would literally have to leave the continent and only then could I go to Burkina Faso. So uh, this is really, really needed to develop commerce, trade and regional linkages. Now, The BRI also includes the development of economic corridors and the promotion of trade and investment among participating countries, which is exactly what Africa needs, in my opinion. And of course, uh, this also contributes towards strengthening uh, regionalism and um, multilateralism. Uh, I believe there are 151 countries participating in the BRI collective right now, and they encompass more than half the global population, amounting to over 4 billion human beings. And their their combined economies are around half the world's GDP. Nothing to sneeze at. And I think it actually might be slightly more than that, um, because when I was looking this up, uh, 151 countries was as of January. And, you know, we've seen more folks like the Honduran president came to visit and made ties. Uh, recently, Marshall Islands was visiting. So, you know, more or less 150. And actually, I'm pretty sure that it's more than half of the world's GDP in more recent calculation. It must be over 60%. But that's a significant group, right? And I think we also have to think about it in terms of the potential that this also invokes, because it's only a 10-year-old project, right? But enhanced connectivity, what does that mean in terms of the movement of goods and services and, you know, kind of fostering interregional trade, especially? I mean, that was part of the strength of Tazara, right? Which we've spoken about, the Tanzania-Zambia railway line that was funded and built by mostly Chinese workers as well as African workers, but largely funded by China at a time in which this was in the late 60s, early 70s. They didn't have a lot of money for kind of cooperation and development. And so, as you've mentioned, of course, you know, all of the things around regional economic integration, infrastructure development um, are super important and have been at the fore of a lot of the conversations. But a missing piece of the puzzle, for example, is technology transfer and knowledge sharing. I mean, people don't necessarily frame it in this way, but, you know, China is now second in the world in terms of how many African students are studying there. They give around or over 12,000 scholarships a year. They're in like the hundred thousands that are studying there. And we see more and more. I mean, I've been getting so many uh, YouTube notifications or YouTube suggestions to watch videos of different young Africans walking around in China, speaking to people, especially in Chinese, which is pretty impressive. But the knowledge transfer and knowledge sharing is a core part of also what she raised not only in 2013, but the years that followed when he was in South Africa in 2015. It was about uh, not only creating the infrastructure, not only connecting the infrastructure, but trying to find opportunities to increase um, people's capacity to wield that infrastructure and to use that infrastructure for public good. And then the other component is the poverty alleviation question, because uh, I don't think that is necessarily as emphasized in the process. It's almost, you know, put separately, like, well, if there's a commercial venture, it can't have any kind of other components to it. And if we look at China's own development, which I highly recommend folks to check out. You know, I'm a researcher at Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, and we have a study on uh, the eradication of extreme poverty and how the process, you know, unfolded. It's a really great study to check out. But if we're not taking seriously, like, what it took for China to 
raise 850 million people sorry, um, out of extreme poverty, uh, we can't really appreciate and understand then why something like this and learning from certain lessons from China is so important to the African continent now. And of course, the hope is that another aspect will be, you know, cultural exchange, more people to people connectivity, because let's be frank, uh, in the last 20 years or so, it has been more focused or we see at least a uh, more public focus on state to state relationships, which of course plays its role. But I think the more you have people meeting with other people, the more you get a sense of of what really the reality of China's development is, and also for Chinese people to understand what the development needs, life, you know, culture is of African people. Uh, totally. And if there's one thing we've seen in human history is that increased uh, trade uh, facilitated by uh, transport infrastructure um, creates uh, more cultural um, interchanges and exchanges um, and the people-to-people -people links flow naturally. You know, commerce leads the way. And at the end of the day, what really matters is human-to-human uh, -human relationships. So let's look at... And mm -hmm. sorry, just a quick... Uh, I want a quick plug is that um, I'm currently in New York at the People's Forum, which is a kind of movement space for education, for culture. And... They are doing a summer school, which they do every year. And this year they're doing it on Pan-Africanism. So because I'm friends of the, the People's Forum and we work on different internationalist solidarity campaigns like, you know, um, solidarity with Cuba, who's been, you know, living under the horrible, horrible grip of a 60 plus year um, economic embargo and various economic sanctions and is currently on the list of state-sponsored terrorism, which is is completely bonkers when you consider the U.S. is the real terrorist state that terrorizes the rest of the world with impunity. Um, but in this course, I was tasked to teach the historical development of humankind, you know, originating in Africa. And it was so interesting to, you know, go back over the early history and ancient history and to think about the fact that most societies that have developed um, haven't done so in isolation. The West always poses itself as having developed itself internally, but even the kind of the bourgeois revolutions that took place in the 1800s, a lot of the knowledge development and the kind of increase of specialized skills, etc., was from interactions with the East. Even though it was a murderous campaign um, to a large extent, or the main extent, the Christian Crusades, when they went east and southeast, uh, they were being exposed to new technologies, new agricultural ways or ways of doing agriculture or technologies, right? And, and different forms of technology and knowledge and work that was much more productive and created, you know, an exposure to new ideas that they took home with them. I mean, the other day, Amadeus, I don't know if you know this, but uh, the Chinese invented ketchup. The Chinese invented sunglasses. Like the Chinese were the first to use bristle toothbrushes using boar hairs, like, you know, centuries ago. Oh, Mika, you, you got to be careful there. I think the in in Indonesians will have something to say about ketchup. Uh, we don't want to start but anything. But it's to say that the East... The East is given, has been part of human development, but the West always isolates it. So I don't know, this just was making me think about how connectivity and exchange 
is part of the story of humankind and human development, even though the West likes to purport that it developed independently outside of time and out of history. Um, well understood and agreed. Um, though I wouldn't call them Christian crusades, I would call them European crusades. I think Christianity is a lot more diverse uh, and it's not just centered in Eurocentrism. And when you understand the doctrines of the faith, um, taking up swords and uh, killing other people isn't really one of those things that uh, Christ taught. But um, looking ahead to the road to development in terms of the BRI, uh, so on February 3rd this year, the State Council Information Office of the People's Republic of China reported that trade in goods with BRA countries broke new records in 2022, hitting $13.8 Yuan. That is 2.05 trillion US dollars. That's a lot of money. And uh, it's an almost a 20% increase year on year. Now, um, this just signifies the importance, as you've rightfully uh, mentioned, about uh, the physical connectivity for global global trade. You know, within Eurasia, within you know, Eurasia, Africa. For example, in 2021, the number of train uh, trips on the uh, China-Europe freight, uh, freight train express rail, that is the CEER, uh, hit a record of uh, 15,000 with an increase of uh, 22 year on year. When the uh, CEER was launched in 2011, it registered only 117 trips that year. That is a huge increase. Um, surprisingly, I think this is very surprising, actually, despite the war in Ukraine starting in February 2022, uh, the fact that the CEER transits both Russia and Belarus, uh, 16,000 trains transited uh, this rail line and 1.6 million TEU S's were transported in 2022. So TEUSs are uh, the um, measurement standards for uh, freight trains, I believe. Um, now, this really shows the resilience and the absolute necessity of this kind of connectivity for all nations, um, notwithstanding which you know ideological or political sides they choose, and you know what kind of perspective. Um, they may have on um, all sorts of things. Now, since launching the uh, BRI, China has financed and built more than 1,000 major projects globally, focusing on transport, power, and water infrastructure. Uh, now, in terms of power production, uh, Chinese capital and companies have been involved in about 800 power plant projects, providing a total of uh, 195.5 gigawatts of power generation capacity. That is ma massive. This is almost as much as uh, 10 times the power generated uh, by the capacity of China's own uh, Three uh, Gorges Dam, which is the world's largest uh, hydropower project. And actually, uh, really, really cool. If you've ever played the uh, video game Civilization, when you get the World Wonder Three Gorges Dam, you never have to worry about power ever again in your game. So, you know, a little geek moment. Uh, now, in terms of roads, China has built thousands of kilometers of highways, uh, railways, uh, ports and airports in Asia and Africa, connecting nations, regions, and local communities. And this is why I've always insisted and always said that 
having a realistic and rational understanding of China and China's role in the world is so important, especially for us Africans. I've always said my perspective and take is I operate primarily politically from a pro-African standpoint and stance. So when you're looking at these type of projects, there is nobody who comes close to this in the world right now. So why shouldn't Africa uh, work with China? on this sort of development programs? Why shouldn't we learn from their experience? Isn't it in our own interest? Particularly because clearly, and I think it makes more sense than why the, you know, Rubios of the world will continue to share, you know, or disseminate misinformation because it would be in our interest to develop alternative um, development schemes and systems that are outside of the kind of subordinate uh, role Africa's played in relation to the U.S.'s development and not the U.S.'s development, the development of U.S. elites and their ability to uh, super exploit the world's people and the world's resources. But of course, you know, Amadeus, it's, it's not easy to necessarily calculate and gauge the impact of BRI in Africa for a couple of reasons. But two of them, I would say, is that infrastructure investments have been relatively recent and it is, to an extent, a little premature to measure the impact. I mean, this is, you know, 10 years since BRI was launched. And uh, I want to share an anecdote that I heard the other day at a book launch held at TPF. The authors were, it's a, it's a great book. Check it out on 1804 Books, uh, which is the bookstore of the People's Forum, where the author of this book on China's development, or socialist construction, rather, shared the anecdote of when Zhou Enlai, the first premier of China was visiting France. This was like, I think in the 60s or 70s, he was asked, what do you think about the French Revolution? And what was Premier Zhou Enlai's response? It's a little too early to tell. <laughs> so that's also, you know, the Chinese sense of time is this longer durée because they come from, you know, thousands of years of being an established, you know, state in many ways. And so... Interestingly, I think we we do have to think about how are we going to gauge this in the long term because many of the projects, some are you know only were completed very recently, and so time will, only time will tell is one. Two is that there is a challenge around what kind of you know official or a limit of official quality you know administrative data on infrastructure in China. In part, it might be about language. In part, it might be about our data collecting and accounting and auditing systems in Africa. But this this is one of the major limitations to assessing how far BRI is, is impacting. And we know that there's also another limitation, maybe I can add, is that we understand, though, that, you know, this isn't necessarily all going to healthcare systems, education, etc., all the kind of public infrastructure that we need for public services um, to serve our people's needs. A lot of it is weighted towards industry, which is about, you know, 50%, 54% um, mining and construction. It's like 36 and six. So of course, mining is heavily skewed and it is, um, and, you know, economic uh, interest for the Chinese to get access to certain mineral resources for their manufacturing as the manufacturing hub of the world. And 4% is about in communication. So going towards, you know, digital infrastructure, fiber optic cables, satellites, etc. Um, but 
I still think nonetheless that BRI has the potential to have a significant impact on global trade, on development. And this is particularly the case, as we've already said in many ways, for the global south, where for centuries we had you know, colonialism, we've had in the last um, 50 or so years a kind of neo-colonial policies that basically reproduce underdevelopment. Uh, and I'm using this underdevelopment in the way the Guyanese political thinker Walter Rodney spoke of it. He has a great text called How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. And this underdevelopment has left most countries in Africa with untarred hazardous roads, with little to no public infrastructure and very few sources of energy supply and generation. And Walter Rodney described this as a, and I want to quote him, a product of capitalist, imperialist, and colonialist expansion. That's his words. Where countries of the global south have been taken either, you know, taken over directly or indirectly in some format by Western capitalist powers. And I want to quote again, he says, what then happened is that exploitation increased and the export of surplus ensued, depriving the societies of the benefit of their natural resources and labor. So again, we can't think about development if we don't think about the historical conditions in which Africa and many parts of the world were underdeveloped in order for Western imperial powers to pursue their development path. Totally, totally. And uh, let's look at the current situation in Africa, for example. So Africa as a continent suffers uh, a massive infrastructure shortfall of um, 100 billion US dollars annually. So Africa would need 100 billion US dollars in investment uh, to make up its, a per annum, to make up its current infrastructure shortfall. And um, there's some key prom uh, projects um, under the BRI, which have shown promise for cer for confronting certain needs. Um, here's an I can mention a few examples from the transport uh, sector. Uh, there's uh, Kenya Standard uh, Gauge Railway, uh, which is a major railway project connecting uh, Kenya's uh, capital Nairobi uh, to the port city of Mombasa, um, which was constructed by Chinese companies and is intended to improve the transportation and, bo uh, and boost trade between these two cities. And if you know anything about Mombasa and Nairobi, <laughs> you know that uh, it will not just boost trade between these uh, cities or um, you know uh, the regions that they're in, uh, or even Kenya itself. Um, you know this will have an impact uh, throughout East Africa, just given uh, Kenya's um, strategic position within the East African community. Uh, there's also the Addis Ababa uh, Djibouti railway, which connects the uh, Ethiopian capital. Um, Addis Ababa to the port uh, of uh, Djibouti and it provides landlocked uh, Ethiopia with a crucial transport link to the Red Sea which also facilitates trade and economic development right um, you can't develop if without trade both uh, internally and uh, externally with neighbors and uh, people uh, from you know near and far there's also the uh, Lamu port uh, in Kenya uh, so the construction of the Lamu port is, is a significant project uh, within the Belt and Road Initiative uh, because it's part of the much larger Lamu port South Sudan Ethiopia transport corridor, uh, LAPSET, uh, which aims to link Kenya with uh, South Sudan and Ethiopia through infrastructure development, including ports, highways, and very important, oil pipelines. 
Now, much of this was modeled on the Tanzania-Zambia railway, that is Tazara, which uh, we mentioned earlier on in this um, episode. And we've actually done an episode, one of our very first episodes on the Tazara uh, project, which was an infrastructure project uh, built in the 1970s with assistance from China. Now, um, Tazara right now isn't directly part of the BRI, but it serves as a historical example of China's involvement in African infrastructure development. And actually, Mika, I don't know if you heard this, but recently there have been uh, talks and interest, uh, especially from the Tanzanian government, in getting into negotiations with uh, Zambia and China uh, to see if uh, the Tazara railway line cannot be refurbished, because unfortunately it has fallen on hard times yeah um hmm? which whilst you're on that point i think to raise for the listeners because the a similar criticism has been lodged at the kenya standard gauge railway that after it was completed it wasn't seeing the subsequent years it was not seeing the kind of revenue um it needed to you know basically be creating a steady source of revenue that the, the the state could then use to funnel back into, you know, social spending. And I think that's just part of what um, some of my colleagues have been raising at Tricontinental in in um, a recent study, Life or Debt, and which talks about the strangulation of Western financial mechanisms and systems. The authors, Grieve Chelwa, a Zambian is one of them who's been on the show, uh, uh, as well as in other texts by Vijay Prashad. Uh, Vijay Prashad recently published or authored one of the texts on basically an independent development theory on how we can recover independent development theories that were emerging in the kind of post-independence period. But what we find when you read those texts, you also have to think about the fact that how equipped and how rigorous and comp or let me say comprehensive are the economic plans for these different resources because a, a big criticism has been like well some of these projects aren't creating the revenue as promised therefore china you know tricked africans or it's actually a failed project but in fact we also have to think about on the part of us as africans what is our plan the same thing happened with tazara there was not a kind of coordinated there wasn't a coordinated regional plan on how we're going to integrate our economies to serve um, our nations so that was one of the shortfalls but of course this is within the global capitalist system so you're always being hamstrung in different ways your, your own country, Zambia, was hamstrung into accepting certain economic policies during the structural adjustment pro programs that basically limited their sovereignty and their ability to use their resources for internal development. It became about, you know... Oh, we were deindustrialized. Yeah. We were effectively deindustrialized, you know, uh, during that period. It's, it's, uh, it's a very emotional thing for me because they were there was a small, narrow industrial base in this country that was completely and utterly wiped out uh, during that uh, neoliberal, um, you know, experiment, test kitchen kind of situation that we had in the early 90s. Precisely. So I just wanted to raise that point that we, we can't take these, like, independent projects and isolate them if we don't understand the wider context of do we have a plan as Africans, but also that our plan is limited by certain mechanisms of global financial capital. But why do we also always have to justify every public infrastructure, pro infrastructure project? Um, every time 
Africa embarks on a major uh, infrastructure project for the public good of Africans, right? Of the local people, of uh, voters in you know our in, you know, nominal democracies, um, we kind of always uh, we look, we are told we have to look for uh, rate of return. We have to profit. Um, I mean, how many do Germans have to justify why they have an autobahn? You know, and has the autobahn really ever made uh, a profit? I, I, I really, you know, certain things are public good. They are strategic assets. And yes, not every strategic asset will be cash flow positive. But that doesn't mean you don't build roads. You know, there is a knock-on effect. So, well... It's just the usual, really, really. As a young man here in Zambia often says, Africa must think, right? We must think about what matters to us. Now, these projects all highlight China's investment in transportation infrastructure in Africa, which aims to improve connectivity, facilitate trade, and promote economic development. And that's great. Uh, but I think as an African, more compelling has been China's own economic development journey, uh, which is something that we talk about a lot in Africa. Uh, maybe not necessarily the Chinese model or example, but the need for economic de uh, development. And China's economic development, you know, wherever you stand on China, the fact is that China managed to uplift over 850 million people from poverty. That That's almost, that is like, what, 60, 70% of Africa's current population. Uh, now, to me, that makes the Chinese model, uh, an inspiration, or at least something that other developing countries should take into consideration and study, you know, especially keeping in mind that our continent, Africa, has around a third of its pop uh, population living below the poverty line. So why not learn from China? What is so bad about that? Precisely. And I mean, right now, uh, it's, you know, 10 years since the process. And as I said, there are limitations, but there's definitely aspects that clearly have, you know, as the World Bank put it, that are largely beneficial. And one, though, criticism I've also seen recently is that, well, the BRI is now being usurped by the Global Development Initiative. And the Global Development Initiative was presented by President Xi at the UN General Assembly in 2021, which, uh, in his words, claim or hopes to steer global development toward a new stage of balanced, coordinated and inclusive growth. And he called for, you know, a commitment to development as a priority and to strengthen that as the priority of the international community. And he made a particular emphasis on industrialization and the, the usual things of, you know, cooperation, specifically around poverty alleviation, food security, climate change, etc. But people have been saying, oh, well, isn't this undermining BRI? But in fact, the BRI is basically the basis upon which he's calling for this shift or called for this shift. And from what I've understood, the Global Development Initiative is now, how do we transform, you know, this quantity into quality? How do we deepen the level of development to have more qualitative uh, transformations and um, outcomes, basically. And it differs, I think, significantly from the priorities that have been set by the G7 and the EU, who, you know, are all kind of right now, NATO is sitting down. Most of the G7 is involved in NATO in some capacity. Mo a lot of the EU and more people are joining, like, sadly, my father's country, Sweden, wants to join in, as well as Finland. 
And it seems like the BRI and the GDI, the Global Development Initiative, stand in contrast to a lot of the Western-backed institutions finance development, in quotes, development projects, because a lot of them are largely not very tangible. I mean, what was this build world better? We still don't really know exactly what that is or what it's going to entail. Um, and, and build back better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it seems to me that this global development initiative as well... Or global gateway, sorry. The EU's global gateway, right? Like, what was that? Like a metaverse event. That's it. <laughs> yeah, as they was announced like what two years ago and almost two years ago, and we still haven't really seen, you know, any kind of material developments behind it. But that paired with, you know, the global security initiative that has been raised seems to me that the Chinese are trying to push for not only the industrial world, but all these kinds of physical projects to start to be more coordinated and more strategic in their application and in the kinds of regional projects that they develop and strengthen. Um, so BRI, I think, has proved itself to be you know, attractive to a lot of the, particularly the developing nations, the global south, as we call it. And you know, it's not as if the West hasn't been invited to the table because, in fact, if we, we had more Western buy-in, uh, they could be probably a shift in, you know, the balance of forces. But I think whilst we live in the world we live in, it's a little bit optimistic to think that the West is going to go along with a China-led project. But I think that the evidence speaks for itself. So I think that's us on BRI, right? Pretty much. I think we've covered everything. We've talked about this before, and we've now kind of caught up to uh, where things are and what our thinking around BRI is right now. I look forward to seeing how it's going to pan out. And in, yeah, in September, there's supposed to be the third Belton Road Forum, uh, which will be interesting, given the fact that also Sino-Russian relationships and partnerships seem to be strengthening and this like historical, almost inevitability of the integration of Eurasia, which the Far West Asia and the US has been fighting, that this Eurasian integration is going to be a key area of struggle and of basically defining um, what new forms of regionalism that might be more equitable could actually look like and that are led by the global south. So interesting times. Yes. Yeah, so on that note, this has been the Crane and Africa China podcast. You can follow us at Dongsheng News' Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Dongsheng News, as well as you can subscribe to our News on China Weekly Digest at dongshengnews.org. Until next time. Ciao.